everyone, Kirk Hamilton here, and you may be asking yourself, wait a minute, I thought Strong Songs was done for the year. Kirk did his whole year in review thing, he put a nice little bow on all the episodes that he did in 2022, he had this whole plan where he was going to focus on a bunch of original creative projects next year after taking a break for the holidays, and now I'm seeing an episode of Strong Songs in my podcast feed, yet it's the middle of December. What's going on? Well, I will answer that question really quick, though, just in case you're a new listener. I am a totally independent listener-supported show. You can become a patron to get bonus episodes of the show and to support the creation of it in the future. Just go to patreon.com slash strong songs to find out more about that. And also, if you're a new listener, welcome. I hope you like this episode. And if you do, there's a whole bunch more episodes that you can go listen to immediately afterward. So why did I feel compelled to make an episode of the show on my month off? Well, a couple of months ago, I started watching a new TV show, and the first episode of that TV show began with a simple five-note melody that immediately captured my imagination. <laughs> if you watched Star Wars Andor and you loved it as much as I did, then right at this moment, this music is making you feel all kinds of things. It's funny, I'm throwing my memory back to that first moment that I heard it, but it's kind of hard to put myself in that headspace since I've now watched the entirety of Andor two times, actually, and whenever I hear those five notes, my heart quickens. But back then, I just thought, oh, interesting. This doesn't really sound very much like Star Wars, but I like it. Disney Plus released the first three episodes of Andor in a batch, and it was easy to see why they're basically just one long season premiere, so the minute the first episode ended, I jumped right into the second episode and I immediately noticed something. What was that cello part? What was the string arrangement? Was this a different arrangement of the same theme music? It was, it was the same title card, the same introduction to the same show, but the music was different. After the second episode's conclusion, I paid closer attention to the show's credits, and I saw a familiar name with the composer credit, Nicholas Bratel, a composer whose work I've come across more and more in recent years. At that point, I was already realizing that showrunner Tony Gilroy and his team of writers, directors, actors, production designers, and more were trying to do something specific and ambitious with Andor, and it made sense that they'd hire someone like Bratel to do the music for that sort of undertaking. Two episodes in, though, I had no idea just what a musical journey this show was going to be, and that that musical journey would be interwoven with the emotional, political, and unusually logistical journeys that it charted for its sprawling cast of characters over its 12-episode run. Now that that 12-episode run is complete, I felt compelled to make this episode since I wound up with a lot to say about the music. And more than anything, I want to explain to as many people as possible why I think this music is so cool and to help some of you out there hear more of what's going on when you watch the show. This episode is going to spoil the entirety of the season, so if you haven't watched it, go watch it because it's really good. And if you have watched it, I actually recommend re-watching it since it's such a richly written show with so little wasted dialogue, you'll make a lot of connections the second time through that you couldn't have made the first time. And some of those connections will certainly be musical. Bertel composed a ton of music for this show, 
and to an unusual extent that music feels tied to the places and people depicted on screen. Junk metal percussion, hammered anvils of Beskar steel, remixed galactic dance jams, horrifyingly weaponized choral tones, and even air raid alert sirens all intermix with Bretel's constantly evolving four-chord, five-note central theme as we move from the streets of Ferex to the jungles of Canari to the rolling hills of Aldani, the glittering, slowly closing cage of Coruscant, the pastel beaches of Niamos, the pristine dystopia on Narkina 5, all the way to the spark of revolutionary fire on Rick's Road, where an honest-to-God marching band faces off against a group of armored Imperial riot cops. That happens on the show. Andor is the story of something growing, slowly at first, but steadily, layering note upon note, tone upon tone, a crescendo so gradual you don't even realize it's happening at first, until seemingly all at once, the music has overwhelmed you. So let's begin with Bretel's Andor theme, which is a four chord, five note melody that just in its fundamental nature and the way that it is applied throughout the run of the show stands apart from what we've come to think Star Wars music is supposed to sound like. The words Star Wars are synonymous with John Williams' triumphant, now ubiquitous musical score. I can't even begin to get into John Williams in this episode. You could make an actual entire podcast just about his music, and you'd never run out of things to talk about. You'd start with Gustav Holst, and you'd just go from there. But suffice it to say, for almost 50 years, Williams' music has been the backbone of Star Wars. In a lot of ways, it's the emotional core of Star Wars. It's tied to so much of the nostalgia and the emotional identity of the series for people. When they hear that music, they think Star Wars. The two are just inextricably linked. So if you wanted to make a Star Wars film or a show or a game or really a Star Wars anything, it was a safe bet that you were going to either use Williams' actual music or you were going to hire someone to write music that sounded like him. And that means that for better or for worse, the Williams' approach to film scoring also just carries down from Star Wars project to Star Wars project. So when John Powell scored Solo, a Star Wars story, he wrote music that identifiably sounds like John Williams, with similar orchestration and arranging ideas, the strings, percussion, and brass all performing similar functions in the ensemble. I mean, you can hear the Star Wars in this, right? It sounds like Star Wars. Same goes for Stephen Barton and Gordy Hobbs' soundtrack for Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. The musical cues in that game are designed to be instantly recognizable as Star Wars. And that's also true of Michael Giacchino's score for Rogue One, a movie for which Andor is a sort of extended prequel and which is fascinating to rewatch after watching Andor. The 
This is the title theme for Rogue One, and again, it's so Star Wars-y that it almost exists in a different realm of music because it's fulfilling a different function. It doesn't present a musical image of its own, it's more of a clear lens through which we can see William's work refracted from decades past. And that's not to take away from any of these composers, it's just to try to illustrate what it is that they were hired to do. For the most part, historically, scoring a Star Wars project has meant working with a very specific orchestrational toolset. That had already begun to change before Andor. First, there's all these clever ways that Williams embraced and built on his own musical ideas in the sequel trilogy, which are also really interesting, but like I said, I'm not making a John Williams podcast here. And also, more clearly and notably in the Disney Plus show The Mandalorian, which gave composer Ludwig Jaronson free reign to compose a score that owes more to Ennio Morricone than Williams, and particularly thanks to its use of unusual instruments like that now iconic bass recorder, helps that show have its own sonic and emotional identity. And I do want to just emphasize here that I'm speaking broadly about these trends in Star Wars music. There are Star Wars shows I haven't seen, Star Wars games I haven't played, and I'm sure there have been composers out there experimenting with alternative approaches from the John Williams approach. But broadly speaking, the John Williams thing is the de facto Star Wars sound. With Andor, Bertel has taken a very different approach. Gone are the triple-tongued trumpets and the swirling woodwind solis, replaced with string ensembles and keening synthesizers. Gone are the strongly defined character motifs, replaced with subtler characters character themes and an emphasis on a single, ever-evolving theme for the show as a whole. On Andor, there are different melodic themes for different characters and places, but also, there's kind of just one big melodic and harmonic idea for the entire show, and it shifts, grows, and develops over the course of all 12 episodes. That evolution is exemplified most clearly by the fact that, as I already mentioned, each episode begins with a different variation of the motif. Bertella said that when he was coming up with the main theme, he came to Tony Gilroy with a bunch of different variations and he couldn't decide which one to go with, and in the end they decided, why not use all of them? It's one of those in-the-moment creative decisions that winds up having a huge impact on the overall experience of the show. Those shifting themes exemplify the way that, just like Cassian Andor himself, Bertel's score never stands still. It's constantly shifting, growing, and evolving. This is the title theme for episode 3, the episode that closes out what I think of as the premiere trilogy of episodes, and it's remarkably different from the two that preceded it, despite the fact that it includes elements of each one. Bertel was no stranger to this kind of television composition going into Andor. His scores for films like Moonlight and If Beale Street Could Talk got him Oscar nominations, but he's also the composer for the HBO show Succession, which I actually talked about in depth on my 2020 episode about HBO theme music if you want to hear me talk more about the Succession theme. On Succession, Bertel is exploring a similar approach to the one that he took on Andor. The Succession theme slithers and slinks its way in and out of scene after scene on that show. It takes on different spatial and emotional contours depending on what fits the moment and what the scene demands. So let's get on to the Andor theme. The main theme often shifts in subtle ways, but at its root, it's a five-note melody placed over four chords. Those chords are A minor, C major, D major, and a final chord that kind of alternates for me between F major and D minor, depending on which notes in the arrangement are strongest. 
Often during these title sequences though, we actually get an abridged version of that chord progression and it really kind of just goes from A minor up to D major, which are the two most important chords of this chord progression. I mean, I don't want to take anything away from C major and F major, but A minor moving to D major is really where the heart of this thing lives. The melody is also very simple. It's just five notes. It starts on a C, then walks up to a G, and then it ends on F sharp. So it's C, D, E, G, F sharp. That's the third in the key of D major, so that's a crucial resolution when it goes from G to F sharp. That's the C chord resolving to D major. And there is actually a sixth note in the melody that comes at the very end when it goes to F natural on that F major chord. So it's a simple melody, but the effect of that melody is anything but simple. There's this feeling I get when I listen to this theme of a swirling darkness that is eventually illuminated by a single piercing light. That light is the final note of the melody, that F sharp. It's a bit of brightness in an otherwise murky space. And it's a sound that I really love, a minor chord going to the four major, which A minor going to D major is one minor going to four major. And the reason I love it is that specific sound, the sound of a natural sixth in a minor key. You don't always have a natural sixth in a minor key, and it's a brighter sound than a flat sixth in a minor key, which a natural minor key usually has. This is the sound that gives Dorian minor its distinct vibe, which is something that I discussed at length in my episode last year about Miles Davis's So What. That's a piece that exists entirely within the Dorian mode, and it's a sound that just lives on that natural sixth. In Bertel's Andor theme, that bright natural sixth, that F sharp, that's everything. That's how this simple melody somehow conveys this sense of awakening. And it's matched perfectly by the visual design of the title sequence itself. There's this emptiness of space, and then it gradually reveals the letters of Cassian, Marva, and Clem's last name. Andor, with the O still occluded, a name both heroic and wary, both additive and subtractive, ready in an instant to fade back into the darkness again. I actually really love this second half of the title sequence as well, where it modulates up a fifth to E minor, and it goes through a similar but slightly different chord progression. It starts over an E pedal, meaning there's just an E sitting down on the bass, and it goes from E minor up to B minor to A major, that four major again, to A minor. That seamless key change elevates the music and gently carries you forward into whatever's currently happening on screen in the opening shot of the episode. Episodes of Andor tend to begin in progress, and while not every title sequence modulates to that second part of the music, it's fun to keep an ear out for whenever it does, and notice the way it lets you hit the ground running along with whatever's happening on screen. It's a subtle use of modulation. Most of the time when people hear key change, they think a big dramatic key change at the end of a pop song, but you can use modulation in a lot of different ways, and I really like the way that Brittell uses it there. That modulation is also a good encapsulation of Brittell's overall approach to this theme. The Andor theme changes. That's what it does. You will hear a version of that melody played over a version of those chords dozens of times over the course of the season, but it's a little bit different each time that you hear it. Sometimes there's a new counter melody, sometimes there's a slightly different chord somewhere in the progression. It grows and pulses and rearranges itself over and over like a living thing. So it's fitting that in the very first episode, after the very first time that you hear it, it immediately modulates to a new key with a new sound and a new energy. 
So moving on from the theme, Andor's first season is 12 episodes long, and while it tells a single overarching story, it's been structured into three episode mini arcs that each tell their own story in Cassian's journey. There's those first three episodes showing the opening events on Ferrix, then there's the Aldani heist, the horrifying events in the prison on Narkina 5, and the final two episodes of the show which act as a sort of a grand culmination for everything that came before them. While Bertel's theme carries through this entire show, each of those arcs does have its own musical style, and I want to take you through each one and demonstrate some of the ways that Bertel tied his music to the different worlds of Andor and made it specific, building new themes and textures into each three-episode arc. You've heard the title music for each of the first three episodes, which are all set on Ferrix in a city built on the salvage trade. Ferrix has a strong sense of place from the moment you first arrive there with that wall of gloves and all that it implies about the way people in this community think of one another. There's the look and feel of the city, the clothes that people wear, and of course, standing over it all, a big guy known only as the Time Grappler, uniting the community in a particularly percussive way by striking his massive anvil to mark the passage of time. The people of Ferrix arrange their lives around percussion, and it's percussion that defines these first three episodes. The soundscape of the city is inextricably linked with Pratel's music. There's metal everywhere in this town, and the musical themes of these first few episodes reflect that. In every scene on the city streets, you can hear metal being cut, metal being pressed, metal clanging against other metal. Bertel's music includes near-constant metallic percussion, a huge variety of different timbres and tones. Bertel said that he and Gilroy initially bonded while banging on the pipes down below Gilroy's building, looking for that time grappler sound. And even if you don't consciously notice this stuff when you're watching the show, that metallic percussive pulse unifies pretty much every scene set on Ferrix. While most of the plot-related action in those first three episodes takes place on Ferrix, the first three episodes also focus on Cassian's childhood on the planet of Canari, where he eked out survival with a band of children in the wake of some as-yet-unexplained mining disaster that presumably killed all of the parents. Those scenes are also defined by percussion, but it's a more naturalistic kind of percussion. Wooden tubes and rain sticks, the sound of the kinds of instruments fashioned out of wood and repurposed plastic rather than salvage metal. It's a very different energy from the rest of the show, but underneath it, you can still hear that same chord progression. Here, I'll play along on piano. Wherever you are, it's still Andor, and Nicholas Bertel is still exploring and growing that one theme. So those wooden drums are a pretty straightforward one. Every time you hear them, it's evoking Canari in some way. Like, the third episode begins with a flashback to Canari, and the end of the title sequence for the third episode features those percussion sounds. It's a very clear contrast with the metallic world Cassian inhabits as an adult, which is a much more abrasive, aggressive place filled with clanging metal. Episode 2 ends with one of the most surprising musical cues in the entire season. You know what they say? Almost done. If you can't find it here, it's not worth finding. Luthen Rail is arriving on Ferrix, just ahead of the Primor security forces. They're all intent on finding Cassian Andor. It's a dangerous situation, ready to explode at any moment. And as the camera cuts to a silent Andor walking through the scrapyards, out of nowhere... 
This aggressive, unprocessed drum set groove carries the show into the credits. It's such an unusual mix, especially the version that plays in the show, which is the version that you're hearing. The drums sound like they just put a drum set in a big room, set up a couple of room mics, and just used that. The effect grounds the music in the scene. The drums sound so live that they could be being played right off screen by a drummer sitting in the scrapyard next to where Cassian is walking. In the third episode, which concludes the Ferrex arc, all that metal and drumming comes to a wonderful diegetic endpoint as the Corpo cops begin to rough up the residents while looking for Cassian. The citizens, led by Solomon Pock and his son Wilmon, activate the town's informal alarm system, which takes the form of what else but a networked improvised percussion line as residents take up clanging on various metal resonators that they've hung up outside of their homes and businesses. It's the first, but certainly not the last, time that Ferrex's cultural traditions are literally weaponized in the service of fighting off imperial oppression. What is all this? Intimidation, sir. Bluff and bluster. <laughs> I don't know if you caught it, but at one point they're even playing what sounds for all the world like a 3-2 clave rhythm. Which I've talked about in the past on the show, and which you'd be more likely to hear in a Tito Puente recording. You can really hear it, right? Like if you loop just that one example of it. Like I kind of want to... People of Ferrix have got a pulse, there's no denying it, and that humanity comes through in this moment of rebellion, an early preview of what's to come. What is all this? Intimidation, sir. Bluff and bluster. I know I already played that clip, I just love his confidence. The following showdown with the Primor forces was one of the most tense experiences I'd ever had watching Star Wars, and that tension was hugely enhanced by a very different kind of musical skill, restraint. The whole disastrous raid features pretty minimal music, just a lot of low, quiet pads, occasionally it'll come up in volume, but it really is just leaving room for that clanging din of the citizens beating their alarm noisemakers to act as the de facto soundtrack. There's no signs. I don't know what street. We're in a firefight here. I need your exact position. That mix of musical composition and sound design plays such a crucial role in how overwhelming and tense these sequences are, particularly the scenes with the harried, flustered cops on the street as they grow increasingly scared and violent. Leave her! Get your men to Rick's road and put a tack on in the air immediately. Bax! What have you done to us? You stop right there! Things get worse before they get better, but eventually Cassian and Luthen make their escape. They cruise across the hydro fields outside of town, safe, and Bretel's past-present suite begins to play, a swelling cascade through those four main chords. Building and building, intercutting Marva spiriting young Cassian away from Canari, with Luthen spiriting adult Cassian away from Ferrix. It's the most complete realization of the Andor theme yet, and we hold on Cassian's face as the past and the present become one. 
course, there's very little time for Cassian to rest on his laurels, and he's quickly enmeshed in an entirely new adventure with a very different Sonic identity, which you can hear at work in the episode for title music. Low, keening synths, percussion like the ticking of a clock, taking their time until we finally hear the Andor theme. And so begins the Aldani arc, which introduces a number of important new characters and a number of important new musical modes. We hear for the first time the distinct theme for the ISB, the Imperial Security Bureau, as we're first introduced to Dedra Mero. And we get a new rendition of Luthen's theme as we see him transform into a different person for his undercover operations on Coruscant. The scene begins with Andor's theme, and then Luthen's theme slowly emerges out of it. It's got a bunch of new harmonic and melodic ideas, particularly as it develops, but it does develop right in front of you. You can hear how it starts as the Andor theme. You can hear those familiar chords playing in the beginning. But then it begins to grow. And grow until it's become an entirely different piece of music. It's much lusher, more rich, with very different harmonies than those four chords of the original theme, and it evolved over the course of the scene, much as Luthen himself evolved, changing his clothes and affect to become a new person. It feels cohesive in a way that all of Bertel's music on this show does. You can always trace it back to that original theme, which makes everything feel of a piece. But while there's loads of cool music happening on Coruscant, the musical concept I want to identify for these three episodes, and the one that really stuck with me, especially on a rewatch, centers around the music for Aldani itself and for the heist that takes place there. You can hear it clearly in the title music for episode 5, The Axe Forgets. That sound is the metronomic rhythms of a ticking clock. For five months, this motley crew has been planning a raid on the Imperial garrison at Aldani, and it's just a few days until the big night. The clock is ticking, and everything in the show's arsenal is brought to bear on emphasizing that feeling. Bertel does some of his best textural work with strings during these sequences, building ever-denser harmonic clusters while under them, light percussion and woodblocks keep incessant tick-tock time. Even when you can barely hear it, you can still hear it. Everything else in these episodes, the pacing, the editing, the performances, emphasizes that countdown feeling. If you ever rewatch these episodes, which again, I do recommend, just sit with that experience and appreciate all the ways that the people making this show have collaborated to put you inside of a giant countdown clock. Episode 6, The Eye, begins with the most rhythmically complex of all of the intro sequences, and while it sounds plenty cool, it seems to drop that TikTok motif, at least at first. Of course, that's only at first. 
<laughs> the episode six intro ends with the most pronounced TikTok of them all, carrying us into the episode when Cassian's ragtag crew executes their heist on the Aldani garrison, and the bomb timer of tension that's been counting down for three episodes explodes. The days of passing skins and ritual nonsense will be soon behind us. No great loss there. It's not as if there's much Aldani civilization we don't forget about in the first place. Drop it! On the floor! What's all this? Drop it there! This heist sequence is a mix of music, sound design, and film editing that creates a collage of rhythmic tension that doesn't let up until the credits roll. Bertel's music is a big part of that. He often layers dissonant harmonies on top of one another to create thicker and thicker chord clusters that build until they break, leaving only a low, pulsing rhythm keeping things going until he builds the next one. A good example of that is when the heist kicks off, as Vel has a moment of hesitation before giving the go-ahead. Point. Are we going or not? Now. Go. We go. Copy. Now right at the end there, you probably heard two sounds. A clang of metal and a ring of what sound like sleigh bells. Those sounds exemplify something very cool that's happening during the Aldani heist. Once again, and not for the last time, the show is using music to juxtapose the power and beauty of a local culture's traditions with the imperial forces that dismiss it and seek to destroy it. During the eye, not the episode, but the actual celestial event, the Aldani people make a pilgrimage to a sacred place just outside of the garrison to join together and witness the event. The heist itself is intercut with footage of the Aldani eye rituals, and as they sing songs and dance, those bells they shake and the melodies they sing mix seamlessly with the music underscoring the heist itself. I was falling out of my seat for this entire episode, and listening to the audio without the accompanying visuals, it's wild to hear just what a percussive, propulsive soundscape they've created. One other diegetic music trick that I wanted to call out, just because every time I've watched this, I've noticed it and thought it was cool, as the TIE fighter pilots at the nearby airbase load into their vehicles, set against the backdrop of the eye, kicking off in the heavens above, the in-world bass siren telling them to run to their fighters lines up exactly with the music underscoring the scene. Hey, come on, come on! You hear it? Anna. <laughs> and it just keeps building and building throughout this whole sequence, all through the heist, into the air escape as a dying Nemec tells Andor to climb, climb, and the music obliges. The tension doesn't truly release until the episode's final scenes as Luthen hears about the raid secondhand in his shop on Coruscant. Aldani. 
Big rebel attack last night. It's all the news. The music quietly shimmers into the scene. Well, I'll have to look. Maybe we have something in the back. Really? I was kidding. A new rendition of that now familiar chord progression as Luthen floats into the back room where he can be alone. <laughs> And where he and we can breathe a huge sigh of relief. After Aldani and or spreads its wings a bit narratively and musically, the seventh episode begins with another synth-heavy intro sequence. And we get a pretty killer new variation on that main theme chord progression as Clea reads the signs in the city to set up a clandestine meeting with Vel. It's far from the first synthesizer to feature in the Andor soundtrack, but it's so front and center in the mix, and it's a good example of the kind of synth work that Bretella is doing throughout this soundtrack. Almost every time a synthesizer takes the lead in Andor, which happens quite a bit, that synth is detuned in some way, which creates a constantly warbling, microtonally mesmerizing sound that's unsettled and unsettling. Speaking of mesmerizing synths, episode 7 is also where we get to hear the full version of Brattel's crack at writing a galactic dance hit. I'm far from a synthhead, but I'd love to get a look at Brattel's synth setup since some of these sounds are so cool, especially the way he works with tuning. It just creates this harmonic swirl that turns your ear on its head. I mean, your ears are already on your head, but you know what I mean. That track, simply titled Nyamos with an exclamation mark, isn't just a fun, weird-sounding tune that's used to set the stage for a very different-looking Star Wars world in the South Beach-looking Nyamos. It's also used to enhance the show's overall world-building. On a rewatch of the very first episode, in the first scene, you'll see Cassian walking by a bunch of different clubs in the Morlana One Pleasure District. And each club that he walks past is playing different music. And then, as he approaches the club that he actually goes into, you'll hear a familiar bass line. No weapons, no comms, no credit, no nonsense. In you go. Indeed, the club that he enters is playing a different version of the track, what Bertel calls the Morlana Club Mix. And then many episodes later, in episode 8 to be specific, as Mon Mothma hosts a characteristically tense dinner party on Coruscant, eagle-eared listeners might notice the same familiar bass line in the background. Can you hear it? It's faint, but it's there. Oh, ask my wife. I never look out the window. <laughs> oh, here she is. Your embassy hostess. The question was, how many hours a day do we stand here admiring the view? We should. I know. 
Not enough. <laughs> I think I On the soundtrack, Bertel calls this version the Coruscant Lounge Mix, which adds a fun implication about this piece of music. That there's this hit song that's been tearing up the charts around the galaxy to the point that it's been remixed for dance clubs and even has a casual lounge version for the high society types to put on in the background at their fancy parties. Episode 8, of course, is also the start of Andor's third three-episode arc, the bleakest of them all, set on the massive underwater prison on Narkeena 5. Episode 8 begins with the most ominous, synth-drenched title theme of all of them, of all 12. It's almost unrecognizable, and the most heroic part of the theme, that major sixth where it resolves to the F-sharp in the melody, has been so detuned that it's essentially been swallowed and the harmony just can't seem to get out and resolve the way that it wants to. Yikes. <laughs> you can practically feel how Cassian has been just swallowed by this cursed installation. first episode on Narkeena 5 is almost scored like a horror movie, which is fitting given the subject matter and what we're watching on screen. The music of these three episodes tells a story of its own in a very different way from the preceding episodes. No more clanking metal, no more ticking clocks. This is a story of hope blooming out of hopelessness, of long-simmering resistance boiling over, and of detuned synth tones swelling into grand orchestral heroism. Episode 8 is Cassian's lowest point, and the music represents that. Those discordant synths are everywhere, the strings are barely present in the background, and the rhythm of Cassian's work table eventually begins to filter into the soundtrack itself as his monotonous days assembling machinery for the Empire begin to blur together. But by the time episode 9 rolls around, he's begun to plan his escape. He's coordinating with his fellow inmates to find holes in the prison's security, and accordingly, the title music for episode 9 is still synth-driven, but it's much more propulsive, and that crucial D major chord is a lot more clearly present. Like, I don't know about you, but this music is making me want to plan a prison break. In addition to the events taking place on the prison floor, episode 9 also includes a particularly bleak sequence in which Cassian's friend Bix is captured and tortured by the ISB back on Ferex. And the nature of her torture is a perverted form of music. Specifically, the chorus-like sounds of a dying species that the Empire wiped out, whose death cries are emotionally damaging to the human psyche. They make a sound as they die, a sort of choral, agonized pleading. It's quite unlike anything anyone had ever heard before. There were three communications officers monitoring the documentation, and they were found, hours later, huddled together in, in various states of emotional distress in a cruel space beneath the ship's bridge. 
We never hear the sound ourselves, and that's almost worse. It's more horrifying to me, I think, to imagine what this could possibly sound like. Though apparently the sound designers did come up with something for the show, they just didn't use it. But regardless, I don't think that the choice of music is an accident here. It's a sort of black mirror version of the power of local musical custom that's so often shown by Andor to be a potent tool of resistance. Here, that same power has been harnessed by the Empire for great evil. We've taken the recordings and modified them slightly, layering, uh, adjusting, and we've found a section of what we believe are primarily children, which has its own particular effect. Between that sequence and the increasingly dire situation Cassian is enduring on Narkeena 5, this episode really puts us through it before finally, at the very end of the episode, Cassian's floor boss Kino Loy gives him the answer Cassian has been chasing all episode long. Many guards on each level. Never more than 12. I don't know if I've ever been more pumped up by the end of a TV episode than I was by the end of episode 9, an episode that's officially titled Nobody's Listening, but in my heart will always be known as Never More Than 12. Never more than 12. And I spent the whole week in agony, just waiting for episode 10, waiting to find out what this escape attempt was going to look like. And imagine my surprise when episode 10 began, not with synthesizers at all, but with a very different sound. Woodwinds, cellos, a full, rich orchestra blooming into the light. This music told me everything I needed to know. This music is what hope sounds like. Over the course of that 10th episode, titled One Way Out, Bertel embraces that musical transformation. The soundtrack has gone from this, after episode 8, in the depths of the prison, to something very different as Kino Loy gives his last, most important inspirational speech. There is one way out. Right now. The building is ours. You need to run, climb, kill! You need to help each other. And as the prisoners on Narkina 5 climb their way toward freedom, the musical transition is complete. The biggest pure orchestral sound on the entire 12-episode soundtrack, a Zimmer-esque barrage of brass pads and string arpeggios that sounds like freedom. I mean, just listen to this stuff. With Cassian free from prison at long last, episode 11 is mostly set up as almost every major character begins to circle around Marva's coming funeral on Ferrix. The episode doesn't feature that much Cassian at all, and that's reflected in the intro theme, which ties together a bunch of familiar sounds, clicking metallic percussion, hollow wood drums, keening synths, a ticking clock, all while keeping its melodic theme almost hidden. You can hear it, but it's occluded in the shadows, much like Cassian himself currently is. 
The standout music of episode 11 arrives at the very end of the episode after Cassian learns of Marva's death. He stands back in Niamos, framed against the sky and the sea, in a shot deliberately constructed to mirror his final moments with Jin Erso at the end of Rogue One and at the end of his life. After hearing the news, Andor stands in silence and Brittel once again demonstrates that crucial restraint. Cass, I'm sorry. Your mother's dead. We see the look on Diego Luna's shocked face, but all we hear is the ocean and the wind. And then quietly at first, the cellos begin to play. If this cello ensemble, a no-net actually, nine cellos, reminds you of something, it may be the opening title music of episode two, the episode in which we see young Cassian meet Marva for the first time on Canari. There's this cello counter melody that comes in every so often when the Andor theme plays. Here we're in the key of G minor, so we're down a step from where it plays during the opening title sequence. But regardless, when the music lands on that four chord and the brightness and heroism reveals itself, sometimes this two note cello counter melody begins to play. La, na, na, la, na, na, la, na. It's a lovely bit of counterpoint writing, and while it turns up over the course of the entire series, it's really noticeable there at the start of episode two. It's not actually the motif that Bertel says he associates with Marva, that one turns up later in a beautiful way in the finale, but it's a motif that I'll always associate with her, and when I hear it, I think of all the ways that her life is intertwined with her son Cassian, and all the ways that her voice carries on in his thoughts, his actions, and in the actions of her people on Ferrix. When it returns at the end of episode 11, I hear it as a musical manifestation of Cassian's grief. Going into the season finale of Andor, I had no idea what to expect. No idea, which is such a rare and wonderful thing these days. The only thing I did know was what I'd learned over the course of watching the previous 11 episodes, that the opening title music for the finale would tell me something important about the episode to come. And boy did it ever. I'm not sure what I was expecting. Maybe I was expecting synths and strings or some combination thereof. I definitely was not expecting a perfectly passionate amateur marching band laying into the Andor theme.
The grin on my face when I heard that, you should have seen it, my jaw was open for the entire run of this episode, one in which a foundational musical thesis of this show, that the musical traditions of a people can be the thing that unites them to rise up against outside oppressors, was brought to its ultimate expression. What's going on? I'm not sure. There are the musicians warming up. There's the time grappler, of course, back again at his massive Beskar anvil, and he calls the band to action, and they begin to march down the road, a dirge in E minor, a funeral dirge, and it's strongly in E minor. There are no natural sixths here, and they start as two separate processions and then come together into one. A few things stick out to me about this sequence. I mean, a million things stick out to me about this sequence. I could talk about it forever, but a few things stick out in particular. The first is just how authentically amateur the band sounds and how committed they were to either recording them on set or recreating that sound and letting them play out of tune and even miss notes in a way that just sounds so believable. I haven't heard this real sounding a band on TV in a long time. I don't know if these actors are all actually playing, though Bertel says that musical director Matt Dunkley is out there playing, and he helped coordinate the sequence as well. And they're playing real enough instruments, flutes, F-horns, trumpets, albeit each with the sort of metal ornamentation that one would expect somewhere like Ferrix. And they just sound like a band made up of a bunch of salvage workers who don't have time to practice every day, but still take their ceremonial responsibilities very seriously. It's perfect. Another remarkable thing is just the presence of the music. It's not just happening, it's having an impact on everyone who hears it. The Imperials are freaking out. I can hear music, And I mean, of course they are. This procession is already an act of defiance, taking place hours before the agreed upon start time for the ceremony. Of course I hear it. I'm just not seeing it. Who started? They're coming from all over town. I want everything out here. Show of force immediately. It continues like that for some time as a whole bunch of different things happen, and it's the same chords the whole time. E minor to D major to G major, back to E minor, this cycling dirge. And then, as the marchers come together and form up, the music changes. The assembled marchers stop and they clear a path for Brazos and B2 to bring out Marva's brick. And the perspective subtly shifts. We stop seeing the Imperials reacting to the music and, in the lingering shots of the townspeople's solemn faces and in the stoic movements of Brazos and his droid friend, we see what this tradition and what this music means to the people of Ferex. And then finally, in a shot that just breaks my heart, we see Bix as she's held prisoner just off the street, pressed up against the window, humming along. That is the embodiment of the power of this music in that one shot. Bix, who was so deeply damaged by weaponized music, who's lost herself in anguish and auditory trauma, she begins to come back just a little bit thanks to the sound of this music that she's presumably heard so many times. 
That's an idea explicitly laid out moments later by Marva in her speech as she recalls standing in this square where she, Cassie and Bix, and all the others have stood so many times, hearing the music, honoring the traditions of their people. I was six, I think. First time I touched a funerary stone. Heard our music. Felt our history. Holding my sister's hand as we walked all the way from Fountain Square. Where you stand now, I've been more times than I can remember. This moment once again connects the past with the present, and that same music, the music they've all heard more times than they can remember, is what begins to bring Bix back. But this band, these marchers, they aren't done by a long shot. For their finale, they begin to fearlessly march forward on the assembled Imperial troops. And as they do, the flutes launch into a new counter melody. I cannot describe to you my emotional state the first time I was watching this. Seeing a marching band face down a small army of armed soldiers led by this music, which can only be described as a battle march. I'm guessing that a lot of you out there were pretty pumped up by that flute melody as well. And while that's partly just because this is an exciting, tense sequence, it's also because Bratel is doing something clever with the music. As he himself describes it, that flute theme is an echo of what he calls Marva's actual theme, which you'll hear throughout the series, but most clearly at the end of episode 3, during the past-present suite, as Cassian flies away from Ferrix on Luthen's ship and remembers flying away from Canari with Marva. Do you hear it? That's Marva. And after all this time and all these troubles, the band and the townspeople, standing around Marva's brick, ready to hear her final address, summon her theme once more to carry them onward. It would have been too on the nose to have the in-world marching band launch into the actual Andor theme, but this is the next best thing, and it's a great example of Bretel, Gilroy, and all the rest of the music team's unusually thoughtful approach to making the music of this show and bringing it to life. What a feat! 12 episodes worth of artfully composed music that is in such deliberate conversation with the people and the places depicted on screen. I mean, there are so many things I could have talked about and so many things that I haven't yet heard or noticed. Andor was more than I was expecting in so many different ways. And above all else, it was such a wonderful musical surprise. Andor is the story of how a revolution forms. The pieces quietly pull together, one at a time, from all different places, until before you know it, a soloist has become a symphony. So what better way to close this episode than with all 12 of the title tracks played and mixed on top of one another? This is something I wasn't sure would be possible until I started playing with it, and then the more I layered, the cooler it sounded. A grand tapestry of music worthy of such a grand tapestry of a show.
And that'll do it for this analysis of the music of Star Wars Andor. I hope you enjoyed it. I had a really good time making it, and I could talk about this show forever. So yeah, this was a lot of fun. Some of the info in this episode was based on a really cool interview with Nicholas Bratell in New York Magazine. I recommend checking that out, and I'll link to it in the show notes. I've already gone on too long, and I'm supposed to be taking a break right now. I just couldn't resist making this episode, so here we are. But if you like this and you want to support me making strong songs, head on over to patreon.com slash strong songs to become a patron of the show. And now I am really, truly going on break, and that'll carry over for a while into 2023. But as you can see, well, I'm never really taking a break, am I? Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you're all having a happy and safe holiday season. I'll see you when I see you. And until then, take care of one another, keep listening closely, and as always, keep your ears on. <laughs>